Good morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I'm your host, Phil Coover, a partner in the real estate group at Ice Miller. And today we have a very special guest. We have Dan Wagner, the Senior Vice President of Government Relations at the Inland Real Estate Group of Companies. Dan, thank you for coming on the show. Hey, Phil, thanks for having me. You know that uh, one of my favorite uh, law firms is uh, Ice Miller. Uh, I have some uh, close friends that are uh, that work with you. I, I know. Well, tell us about your work with Bob Schillerstrom and what you did uh, and how you got to know Bob and your work there. Sure. Well, through through Bob Schillerstrom, I've got to know uh, Dean Luffelman and Mike Roth as well. Uh, so Bob at, Bob asked me to uh, to come work for him when he became chairman of the DuPage County Board. And I was uh, Bob's chief deputy for five years, and he did a, a great job as chairman of the county board. Uh, um, I needed to uh, to go and, and make more money because I had triplets plus one. So I had Irish quadruplets. If you can imagine four cribs in the house at one time. So I, Mr. Goodwin, the chairman and CEO of the Inland Real Estate Group, we, uh, we were friends uh, through a variety of years through meeting with uh, when I worked for Lee Daniels. And uh, basically he came and he said, we're going to uh, retrain you for business. And I, uh, I went and got my series seven and 63. And I tell everybody, you know, there's a God when Dan Wagner passes a series seven on the first try. So that was really hard. And I got my broker's license and, um, and he made me go to a college of page to get my account to take accounting 101 because I never had accounting in undergrad or grad school because I was a political science guy. And so I had to go to uh, the college of page, wear my suit, going into the accounting 101 class. But it, uh, I learned a lot. And every day, uh, Mr. Goodwin, you know, as you know, Inland was founded by four teachers and he was a teacher. So working for him is like being in grad school <laughs> for all these years because it's the Socratic form of learning. You, you, you just, you always are on your toes and you're, uh, you're always being made better, which I like. That's awesome. That's such a great story. I feel like we could also do a parenting podcast just based off uh, your experience. I have a friend who just had triplets, but uh, the fourth is, uh, you know, it's a whole nother level. Yeah, we went, um, we, we didn't, we never had man to man. It was always zone, <laughs> always zone defense. It was crazy. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. I mean, that's also really interesting and um, a great to hear that the company was willing to invest in you long term by sending you back to school, kind of having you learn business. Um, that's really interesting. And so you've been with the Inland Real Estate Group of companies for, for many years. Why don't you tell everyone about the company and, and what you do in, uh, in government relations there? Sure, sure. So um, I'm really proud of, of the company. Inland was, Inland was founded in, uh, about 53 years ago, 54 years ago by four Chicago public school teachers. So uh, Dan Goodwin um, is the chairman and CEO. Um, his dad w- worked at a tool, a dye company. So he, he comes again from a um, very modest background. Bob, uh, Bob Baum's dad, he's our chief legal counsel. Um, his dad actually traveled from uh, gas station to gas station selling auto parts. And he was also a cantor at his uh, synagogue. Uh, then we have Joe Casenza's dad. Uh, Joe's dad was a barber in Chicago. And Bob Parks, uh, the fourth teacher, his dad was a janitor. And these, these four people that come from nothing, uh, they, uh, they were teaching and they realized that they only made $5,500 a year and they needed to make more money. So they started going to other Chicago, Chicago public school teachers, uh, suggesting that they invest with them and they wanted to go into real estate. And they did so well 
going into real estate that they recognized that they needed to leave teaching to be able to be responsible in managing all of these investors' money. And they did so well, they got up to 42,000 apartments in Chicago. They were the largest landlord of, of the city of Chicago. And then the tax laws changed in the 80s. And with the tax laws changed, some of the deals, because the uh, pass-through entities uh, could no longer do that, some of the deals were underwater, and they would not allow that to happen to any of their investors. So what they did is that they put all their money back in the company, and they went to Walmart. They said, hey, Walmart, can we do sale leasebacks with you? Walmart never did that before, but they, they took a chance on these four teachers. So they did. And at the same time, on a parallel path, they went to Treasury, and they said, hey, Treasury, we have these people that are that are underwater. Could we 1031 like kind exchange them into a fractional share interest of these Walmarts? And Treasury's like, oh, my gosh, you mean you're going to save these people? And they said, yeah, go ahead, make it happen. So that's when Inland, I call it it's kind of our wonderful life moment. That's that ethical thing that they chose to do, shot them to the stratosphere where now Inland, uh, I think we just recently, Joe Casenza just purchased his the 50th billion uh, of uh, commercial real, real estate property in America. We've owned uh, in every state except Alaska and all kinds of different properties, but that's that's inland. And um, one of the things that uh, that happened is that Mr. Goodwin said, I don't ever want this uh, the government to kind of happen to me again. I want to you know, know what's going on ahead of time. And so I'm the second person in this job. And my job as the senior vice president of government relations is to kind of be the canary in the coal mine, if you will, to be able to let, uh, let our uh, leadership know what's happening from a regulatory and legislative standpoint. And the way we do that is Mr. Goodwin recognized that the, like the Realtors, uh, the NAREIT, um, U.S. Chamber, all these organizations are very, very, very strong. And so we're involved and joined all these, we're part of a lot of different associations. And that has been probably one of the best strategies uh, for helping the company in all these different areas. So we've been involved because of Mr. Goodwin, we've been involved with uh, the latest uh, tax reform discussions um, 2016 with the Republicans and now in, uh, in 2021 with the, De with the Democrats. And we're engaged with uh, uh, probably 40 different organizations uh, around the country to help save and protect the 1031 like kind exchange. That's just an incredible story of, of Inland and how it, it began. I mean, I bet people that are listening to this podcast have driven by many buildings that have Inland signs and they've driven by, you know, they've known about it their old careers and uh, they didn't realize that it was just you know, four school teachers pulling some money, getting a couple others to invest, and and they've grown it from there. I mean, that's pretty incredible. I also feel like you guys should just buy a property in Alaska just to make it happen. <laughs> like, you, know, you know what? Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> we gotta we gotta car we gotta stop that carve out and, and uh, just to get to it. Um, yeah. So the ten thirty one like kind exchange. Um, yeah, I was going to, so we're going to talk to Dan about a couple of things. We're going to talk about the 1031 like kind exchange. Uh, we're going to talk about Delaware statutory trusts, which is uh, related. So we should probably start with the 1031. Sure. And then, sure. um, but also Dan and I share um, a passion for conservation and uh, Dan is on the board for the Conservation Foundation. And, um, you know, a lot of his work actually ties into that. And Dan's at the forefront of that. I'm, I'm at the background trying to peer my way in. Um, but you know, he's going to teach us a little bit about it. So Dan, tell us about the 1031 exchange and just, I'm sure many people are listening 
know about it very much and use it and think about it all the time. But then, you know, some people may not. And, um, you know, in, in your work to try to preserve that element of the tax code. Sure, sure. The the 1031 like kind exchange, the best way to describe it, it's kind of like the 401k of real estate. You're able to use pre-tax dollars and you're able to grow your portfolio. So if you have anything that's uh, that's real property, um, nothing personal, no personal property that was taken out of in the 2016-2017 uh, bill that the Republicans that they passed. But the what happens is, is that for real property, you're able to 1031 like and exchange all of the proceeds from a sale of your real property that's for investment purposes, not your home or anything like that, but just your the real property that's, have, that's for investment. And you could plow all of those profits into a bigger property. And you're able to grow your portfolio that way. And so again, it's like the 401k of real estate. And people, when they're able to, to do that, it's really synergistic in the in our economy and the, the one of the things i wanted to highlight is that some of the studies that we've done to be able to take a look at the power of the 1031 is that they verified that owners maintain and buyers renovate so because there's so much activity with the buying and selling of commercial real estate because of the 1031 acts as the liquidity tool we have so much that's being done. As a matter of fact, uh, for example, we, we worked with the mayor of Naperville uh, who, who actually gave testimony to Congress this year. And we just had one qualified intermediary company. That's the third party that holds the money in the transaction. They were able to identify about $450 million worth of 1031s that happened in Naperville over the last five years. And uh, Mayor Cherico was he was just so pleasantly surprised. He said, I knew the 1031 was important, but I, you forget how important. And he said, uh, he's like, take a take a deep breath. And then you exhale. You realize, boy, your breath is a, you know, breathing is kind of important. But you take that for granted. And we, as he said, we take the 1031 for granted as elected officials, because when he realized that there were four hundred fifty million dollars worth of 1031s in Naperville alone, he's like, oh, my gosh, those are medical office buildings that got remodeled, their strip centers that got remodeled, and none of those different deals came to government asking for money. They didn't come saying, we need a subsidy, because the 1031 was already there. It's, it's been in our tax code for 100 years. And he, he just highlighted how important it is. And then he went another step further, a really big, very big project on on Ogden Avenue, there was an old Kmart building that was just totally dilapidated. I think it had a nail salon or two. And there was a gentleman that owned it, an older guy who was never going to sell because he would have been uh, had to pay too much in capital gains. And the only way that he sold, he sold to Costco and he they were able to then um, he was able to 1031 and, and he was able to sell and, and relinquish the property. Costco came in, tore all that down, which included jobs for that. Uh, then they rebuilt it, and that included jobs. And the other thing is they're, they're providing jobs for people to work at Costco. So uh, it's it's really a pretty amazing to see all the different ways the 1031 helps. But the, from the real estate, big, you know, from commercial real estate aspects, some people aren't aware of the other ways the 1031 is impacts things. So, for example, uh, we went to uh, the uh, IBEW. Uh, to locally and ask them, you know, told them about what's happening with uh, the 1031 that uh, right now members of Congress are looking at you know, possibly eliminating it or capping it. And they said, 
you know, boy, I told you about 568,000 jobs. That's a big deal for the trade unions. But the manager, the, the, the person that runs that organization said, you know, Dan, we love jobs. But the other thing you need to realize is that we're really proud that as a private union, we pay for our own pension funds. And so the investments in pensions are, are a really big deal to us because we want to protect the, the retirees. And he said, if you can show me how REITs, REIT stock would be impacted by 1031 being capped at $500,000 and let me know. Uh, so we had Baker McKenzie do a study and they were able to show the union that indeed the, the returns would go down if the 1031s were capped at five, if they were eliminated or capped at $500,000. And so he said, boy, our locals on board with you. So I've been able to tell different members of Congress that, which has been terrific. The second aspect of the, why the 1031 is important is because of it brings in capital into underserved communities. And Congressman Danny Davis, we were talking to him and we verified that in Bronzeville, in his area, the, the uh, Ida B. Wells housing complex was torn down by Mayor Daley like 15 or 20 years ago, and it just sat vacant and it became a food desert. There was no place for people to buy groceries. So one day a guy comes and he d starts developing a Mariano's there. And then a New York investment firm found out about it and they bought it and 1031 exchanged all their money into this really nice area and they built the Marianos. It helped to reduce um, crime. It's given jobs. It helped uh, with uh, property values going up. And so we're to talking to Danny Davis about this. He's like, oh my gosh, I shop at that Marianos. And then I told him that the guy who developed it was David Doing. And he said, my God, he's been my neighbor for 20 years. So I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. But so bringing dollars into underserved communities is a, a great tool, an economic development tool for the 1031. The other aspect is the idea that the 1031 is there for farmers, because farmers, as you know, Phil, are dirt rich and cash poor, right? So farmers use the 1031 to be able to manage their portfolios and their all their properties so that if they have a piece that's 20 miles away and they know that their neighbor is looking at selling, they can do a swap, they can do this 1031 exchange. And again, they don't have to come up with the cash out of pocket. It's uh, due later, but it's uh, but it's all set into their, their way that they're able to run their farms. And then the other aspect of this, which we talk about related to um, your love for conservation and my love for conservation is that the 1031 is vital for the conservation movement to reach 30 by 30. 30 by 30 is 30% 30 of our land in America would be open space by 2030. And all the conservation groups know if the 1031 is capped at $500,000, they're not going to reach that goal because what the the different um, the different uh, groups like Birds Unlimited or uh, like the Conservation Foundation, for example, they're able to go to farmers and buy the land and the farmers will be able to sell because of the 1031, because of the deferral properties of it. And that's been very, very, very important, especially um out west is a really big deal for doing the 1031s for conservation. But there's across the country, you could go into every area and there's different uh, places that have the 1031 to thank for that open space. Um, that I know that uh, in Kane County, there's a forest, forest reserve directly relate, related to the 1031. But the DuPage County, other places, Cook County, they didn't necessarily keep records of how the, why the farmers sold, uh, but our guess is the 1031 is, is right there with it. So those are some of the key aspects of the 1031 and why it's been so important. And again, conservation, boy, oh boy, there's so many examples out there of why it is, why conservation uses the, the 1031 as well. So those are some of all the different aspects of the 1031. And 
the the idea that uh, you're able to grow wealth for your family is another one. The Bill Brown is the past president of the National Association of Realtors, and he happens to be an African American, and he is in California. His company goes and. 1031 uh, buildings for apartments and the apartments are usually very dilapidated and he uses the pre-tax money of the 1031 to be able to renovate the apartments and spends anywhere from seven to ten thousand dollars per unit to upgrade the housing stock and so he's like my gosh if the 1031 was capped or went away he wouldn't be able to go forward with uh, with all of his development and helping people too so it's pretty interesting to see the the broad spectrum of it and as I said before the 1031 is a deferral and so some people might say, my gosh, the 1031, you're, you're just, you're not paying the taxes. Well, the studies show that over 80% of 1031 uh, properties actually do pay the tax um, at the end of, uh, of, of a sale, a sale or uh, the process of development. So it's, it all, it's all working out really well. And when they looked at the studies by the president where they wanted to see how much it would actually gain the treasury by getting rid of the 1031, or by capping it, it only comes up with $2 billion a year for 10 years. And the studies show from, there's an Ernst & Young study that shows that the 1031 actually creates about five to $7 billion just in transfer taxes alone, plus recording fees and depreciation recapture tax that that's five to $7 billion. So there's actually to do elimination or to cap the 1031, what you'd be doing is you'd be uh, dissolving the rest of the, the money that's going to local and state governments for taxes. So it's actually a net loss to taxpayers. And that's been what we've been heralding across the board to uh, members of, of Congress. And I know that uh, that we're, we're working really hard. Mr. Goodwin has us working with the Real Estate Roundtable, the National Association of Realtors, um, the IP, Institute for Portfolio Alternatives, Federation of Exchange Accommodators. That's a really big deal. Um, so we're uh, we're excited about it. We're thinking that we're making progress, talking to members of Congress. And just recently, the House Ways and Means Committee chair uh, put forward their proposal, which is for reconciliation, and they did not include the 1031 in their package, which we were very grateful. So our theme is the juice isn't worth the squeeze. So we keep telling them the juice isn't worth the squeeze. And so far, the House, uh, House Ways and Means Committee agrees with that. Now um, it's going to be sent over to um, eventually after the House uh, we believe will pass it, will be sent over to the Senate, to the Senate Finance Committee, where Ron Wyden is the chair. Dan, that was that was quite a summary. I'm going to need you to give me some more information. I didn't get enough out of that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. There's so much here I want to talk about. Um, yeah, you know, your point about transfer taxes was a huge one to me. That was what I was thinking about while you're talking is just all of these transactions, it's, it's just, it's a macroeconomic issue and just keeping the money cycle going and all of the providers, uh, providers, I'm, I'm notice, note to the lawyers doing these deals, the real estate brokers, the title companies, all of these jobs that are sustained or maintained because of the, uh, the volume of transactions and the, the value that is derived to the entire economic system by just keeping the money supply moving and keep tra keeping transactions going is quite substantial. And especially in Naperville, you got a very um, robust transfer tax in Naperville. So yes. know, you, you, have a, you have a lot of uh, money coming right to the government, uh, just right, you know, local government uh, by just having more transactions volume 
occurring in that in that space and also to the state um so there's there's definitely a lot of value there you know i i had not actually uh you know taken a political position on on how i felt about the 1031 it's just something that's kind of existed my entire career but you make a lot of very compelling arguments uh for the benefits of made of keeping it in place i'm sure it's well it's i was gonna tell you it, it's it's a continual education process and the uh, in 2016 when we were walking on in Capitol Hill and and knocking on doors, I knocked on an office door and I said, "Here, I, I'm uh, Dan Wagner here to talk about the 1031." And the staff person said, "1031? No, it's 11 o'clock." So they, it's they're like that. They, there's a, tran, a a turnover in Washington so much that the average staff person in Washington is 22 years old. So for this to be in the tax code for 100 years, that, that's unusual, and people recognize that it's unusual, but what we end up having to do is that uh, different elected officials and their staff continually see it as a possible pay for, uh, for things that they want to do. Every, everybody gets elected and they have a, a platform that they run on. President Biden's platform was to, or is to um, give free college education, healthcare benefits and uh, childcare benefits. And that's pretty expensive. And so they're looking at ways to pay for things. And so the 1031 always ends up on usually somebody's pay for list. And it would we were able to garner the uh, support of all these organizations. There, literally, there's like 44 organizations. There's the American Farm Bureau, the Nature Conservancy, the Land, Tr- the Land uh, Trust Alliance groups, the um, the National Association of Realtors, the Asian Hotel Owners Association, the Commercial Real Estate Finance Council, Mortgage Bankers Association. I mean, just the list goes on and on and on. And when you have these totally different disparate groups all working together or different kinds of groups working together, it's amazing the synergy that that happens. And the Real Estate Roundtable is phenomenal to be able to bring all this, all these groups together and um, the IPA, um, all these wonderful organizations that have been fighting for us for uh, for many years, and it, it all comes together now to be able to educate folks. And I appreciate the elected officials being open to this and not just you know jamming something through. They're really thoughtful and trying to figure out what's the best thing for America. And I've had some terrific Zoom calls with uh, so many different elected officials around the country, and it's uh, it's terrific and heartwarming to see that while the the press might say some negative stuff. The, in general, um, you're talking to people that really care, and might, they might have some different viewpoints of views, but uh, they still are, are open to listen. And that's been probably one of the best experiences I've had so far, uh, being able to feel good about how our country is running, because it truly is the best country in the world. And to see this kind of discourse go on, uh, and people can be respectful and, and have really good discussions is very, very heartwarming. That's great to hear. Just a quick little side question is just as somebody in government relations, how is uh, the Zoom world? Is it is it helped your like your what you're trying to accomplish that you can reach out and connect to more people across a larger geographic area? Or do you find that you kind of miss the days of being able to get in person meetings and you found that you were more persuasive in person? Uh, maybe you're able to get more out of someone in person. Like, how, how's it affected uh, your you know, goals? That's a that's a really good question because I just got back from Washington yesterday, and the the it's good to be with with these folks in the room because you get different nuances that you don't have different body language and things like that. 
Um, so it's, I'd say it's, uh, it's probably a little bit, it's better to meet in person, but the, still the, the Zoom calls were interesting because we were able to have, you have to have more of an agenda and more uh, a direction of who's going to talk when. And because in a room, everybody can talk at once or whatever. It's, it's more, it's, it's just more pliable for that kind of give and take conversation. So I would say there were probably some more in-depthful discussions that the elected official had to was able to hear because of the manner of which a Zoom works. When you're in person, you have uh, a lot of congeniality, but sometimes you don't have the the time gets messed up with some of those more of the pleasantries. And then you're able, you're like, at, you're walking away from the meeting saying, my God, I forgot to bring that up. And a Zoom is much more uh, focused and organized where you get all of your points through. But the 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 problem with the Zoom is you, you don't have those nonverbals. Um, it was really good to be part, to see those nonverbals with the elected officials we met with because it, uh, it gave you reassurances that things are going good. Nice. That is super interesting. I hadn't heard that point. I think that's a great point about you're, you're able to, like in this format, I know not, it's one of the things I've learned as a podcast host is not to talk when uh, my guest is talking because it's just, it's just difficult, but that's not how real life works. Like you might, I, I would probably give more uh, verbal cues like nodding or like, yep, you know, kind of saying one or two things, but I'm, I'm conscious of being quiet while the other person's talking because it just doesn't work over Zoom. Um, one of the things that I thought, uh, so thanks for that segue, <laughs> but, uh, but one of the things I want to talk to you about is the conservation. And so you had written an article in the National Association of Realtors uh, magazine about how 1031 helps for the environment and conservation issues. And I was reading it again this morning and I was really thinking there was one. And so you gave it what was great about it is like a list of tangible examples of how, how it actually helps. And one of them was there is a dead zone in the Gulf and nothing could grow because there are all these uh, farming operations up and down the Mississippi River that for whatever reason, those operations were causing things to die in the Gulf when, it, when the Mississippi hit it. And the, the idea was is that uh, without the 1031, these farmers, conservation groups could not purchase this farmland and then put a conservation easement over it uh, because it, it, it fostered that because the farmer without a 1031 wouldn't have the same incentive or ability to sell because of the tax problem that they would have on on that sale. They wouldn't be able to take, I like to use base 10. When I, was, I was like trying to figure it out in my mind with a, a monetary example. I, I like to use base 10 because it's easy. So if they had a million dollar property and they made a hundred thousand dollars a year off their farming operation, they wouldn't, let's assume they'd owned it for a long time and the, the tax would be quite, it'd appreciate quite high. Like they wouldn't want to sell it for a million dollars because then they'd have to pay a couple hundred thousand dollars in taxes. And then maybe they could only buy an $800,000 property to replace it with. So a conservation group would come say, Hey, you got to sell us this because your farming operations are hurting um, the Gulf and, you know, we'll pay you full market value for it. And the farmer would, without the 1031 would say, I can't because I'll have to pay the taxes on the gain and then I'll only be able to buy a lesser property, 
which will hurt my yearly income because the farm that I would purchase after I pay my taxes wouldn't be as big or as profitable as as I currently have. So I, I respect the environment and what you're doing, but I, I just can't afford it. Um, with a 1031, they can sell it and then go buy a like property for a million dollars where they can still have their farming operations just in a, in a location that is not uh, causing the same amount of damage. So I, I thought that was one of many great examples you gave and one that really um, helped me figure out what was going on and how it could work. Well, and, and interestingly enough, uh, the that the runoff, yeah, the nitrates going into the into, uh, Mississippi is a big deal. And so the, these 1031 as a tool for farmers and for conservationists is just such, uh, such so simpatico. It's phenomenal to be able to do that. And one of the things now that uh, farmers or and anybody with with real, real property is able to utilize is a Delaware Statutory Trust 1031. And so that's where um, Inland, because of our connections to the 1031 from our past, uh, we were involved with creating um, ticks, tenant in commons. And then my uh, my boss identified that as kind of a clunky way to uh, to invest. So he came up with this idea of a Delaware statutory trust, 1031 like can exchange. And that's when people can sell their farm. They can sell um, any real property and they can get into a Delaware statutory trust investment where you get a fractional share interest and uh, you get uh, a return on your, hopefully uh, it's not guaranteed, uh, but you can get a return on uh, your investment through a monthly check and also uh, hopefully appreciation. But uh, there's no guarantees on any of that, but it's pretty interesting that uh, this got created and boy, it's uh, it's been just terrific. Do you want me to kind of talk a little bit more about DSTs too? Yeah, for sure. So they're, uh, a great tool for people that um, you know want to want to put their gains somewhere, but don't necessarily want to actively manage property or want to diversify uh, their assets. So yes, I mean, Inland is is the place to to go to talk about DSTs. So Dan, tell us about it. Sure. Well, the interesting aspect of the DST is, first of all, you could have more than 35 investors. You can have, because ticks only can have 35 investors, but DSTs, you can have 1,999. And what that means is that the minimum is about $100,000. So you can get a lot more people into uh, getting you know, really high level properties. And so a company like Inland is able to purchase a $150 million apartment complex. And we, you know, we have it, it's there. And then we can... Uh, through financial advisors, uh, they're able to work with their clients. And if it works best for the client, they could go into a, a Delaware Statutory Trust 1031. And the client doesn't have to worry if they've had problems in the past with finances because the, there's no recourse to the loans. Um, there's no balance sheet that the, the client has to provide to any bank. It's because Inland already bought it. So they're able to go into this product, which is that's super important. The other thing is, is that they, they give up management. And so they have Inland, who's been running the realist commercial real estate for 53 years. We know how to do it pretty darn well. And the, when, the, um, when we buy a property, uh, we go through due diligence like nobody could imagine. But interestingly enough, because this is a security, the financial advisor firm also does due diligence on all these product, all these different properties. So you get kind of like the belt and suspenders of due diligence. And a lot of uh, realtors, for example, wouldn't have the probably wouldn't have the time or, or or resources to be able to do all the kind of due diligence that gets done. 
but the what what is so great is that you don't have to worry about the toilets trash and tenants or uh, running the farm you're able to um, hopefully with if the the product that your financial advisor gets you into you're able, you're hopefully you're able to get um, a return uh, every month uh, and also then hopefully it goes well where you have a, a very wonderful accretive advantage at the end but the the, the Delaware statutory trust has become a really positive thing for people. And I'll tell you a couple of quick things. Uh, there was a, a financial advisor or actually a realtor um, in Manhattan that had a, a, two people that owned a deli, this older couple, and they were going to be sell, doing the deli for the rest of their lives because that's how they got their income. Because if they sold it, they would not have the money to pay the capital gains tax and wipe them out. And they had to have income. So the realtor heard about the DST explained it to the, this couple and they like started crying because it was their solution and they were able to uh, the, the realtor was able to sell their real property and they were able to 1031 exchange into a Delaware statutory trust and the couple was able to get uh, monthly income and they're you know they're able to enjoy their lives and the other cool aspect of this is that um, when uh, in I guess cool might not be their best word, but when they pass away, their heirs get it with the stuffed up in bases. And it's, uh, you know, the heirs don't have to worry that they got to sell property. It's already taken care of. It's already pre-done. So there's a lot of benefits with uh, the Delaware Statutory Trust that people uh, might not be aware of. And the other thing uh, that people should know is that with like realtors, for example, uh, I was at the Texas Association of Realtors and I explained the DST and everything. And this uh, gentleman comes up to me afterwards and he said, I lost my best friend. I said, what are you talking about? Why did he die? And he's like, no, no, I was his realtor. And I sold his ranch for $15 million. And then I was going to tra- 1031 exchange it into a, another piece of property. Uh, but this was a sure thing. And so we only listed just this one piece of property, but at the last minute it blew up and my friend was on the hook to pay $4 million in taxes and he's no longer my best friend. And he said, if I knew about, about these DSTs, that would have changed everything because with, with uh, the, the Delaware or with the 1031, it's, you still have a lot of rules that play out. You have 45 days to identify three properties and 180 days to close. And, um, it's important that you work with a qualified intermediary because you can't touch the money uh, when you sell it. You can't you can't close or anything. You have to make sure to work with a qualified intermediary and have all the proceeds go to this third party. And then the third party makes the arrangements to purchase either the DST or the other um, the other property as well. And the other aspect of the DST that's pretty cool is the idea that you have to uh, match your debt for debt. And we uh, at Inland, we have different uh, debt uh, DSTs. Some are 80-20, some are no debt. It all depends, but everybody has a need for different kind of uh, debt instruments. And so that's another part of this that works out so well. Um, And it's been uh, pretty rewarding to see how many people have been able to benefit from this. And farmers, uh, boy, they just, uh, when they find out about it, that it's pretty exciting for them. It's interesting because farmers, they uh, they really are proud of the land they own and they want to keep it in their family for generations. And I totally understand it. But when they have their kids and the kids all of a sudden say, you know, I don't want to be a farmer and there's nobody in the family to do it. This is a really great way for farm families to be able to monetize and retire going into uh, something that's managed by a big company like ours. But there is the the one, the big precaution is to highlight that this is for accredited investor. That means that you have a million dollars of net worth besides your home 
or you make $250,000 as an individual or $300,000 as a couple. And the reason why that is, is that they have to be more sophisticated investors because these are illiquid products. You cannot go to a secondary market really and, and get the money out. And the money's put into an investment uh, piece of property. So you know, you're not able to sell the investment you know, right away if you want the money and, and people need to be aware of that. And, you know, the, like I said, the old tick days, tenant in common, 35 people, you'd have to get all 35 people to vote and say, yes, we're ready to sell or we need to put a new roof on, whatever it is. And if one person said no, you couldn't do it. So the management aspect of it was a nightmare. But now with these Delaware statutory trusts, there could be 300 people, 500 people, because the minimums are only $100,000. You get a lot of people into it, and it's managed by a company like Inland who knows the ins and outs of, of running things. And with real estate, there's always something that's going to happen that you don't know about. And you want to be with people like an Inland that has you know, really ridden through a lot of the, uh, the storms in real estate and have come out on the other side doing well. So we're, we're pretty proud of the fact that we manage our own properties at Inland. Um, we have about 1,100 employees around the country. Here in DuPage County is where our, our mothership is. It's where our headquarters is at. And we're proud uh, to live here in DuPage and to uh, provide a, a lot of enrichment to the communities as well. Our, uh, our founders are very generous and do a lot of good stuff for the community as well. Thank you for that. Uh, explanation. Yeah, I mean, I first heard about a Delaware statutory trust a couple of years ago. I was talking to a gentleman who uh, had built, you know, just started buying one multifamily property when he was young, bought another, bought another, and then, you know, over the course of his career, managed those properties, uh, had some maintenance staff, but did a lot of it himself, was a landlord. Uh, and then, you know, he was, you know, getting to be about 70, wanted to retire, but his his way out was to sell that property and then put the money into a Delaware statutory trust so that he could have some recurring income, um, but didn't have to continue to do the day to day management. Because anybody who's who's owned a building knows that uh, these passive investments aren't aren't so passive sometimes. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, re realtors like the other thing about these are um, second homes. So people, they might have a vacation spot that they like going to. And as they get older, they might say, boy, this is something we don't have time to go to anymore. And they start renting it out. And if they rent it out for a couple of years and really you know, don't use it, it's more of a rental experience, then th th this is a perfect example to go into a DST. Or let's say that someone is selling their property and they, they want to go into another piece of, of, of land. Um, and there's a thing called boot that's money left over. Uh, from the because you have to invest all the proceeds and if whatever doesn't get invested, uh, you, you're taxed at capital gains rates and you have to pay the depreciation recapture and everything else. So what some people are able to do is if they let's say they buy uh, they have up two hundred thousand dollars left over or a hundred thousand dollars left over, it, they can they have the option of not paying Uncle Sam of deferring that and going into a DST and getting um, you know hopefully that monthly income again it's not guaranteed for monthly income but that's what we hope and that's makes realtors have said, boy, you guys have made me look great with my clients. They, they didn't do uh, the 5 million project, but they did put 100,000 in and they were really happy with that. And then some people then come back and want to do more. Um, I know a farmer who um, who just did $100,000 in uh, in one DST just to see what it's like. And he loves it. And uh, his wife and him don't have kids. And so he wants to sell his $5 million farm and, uh, and go into DST so he doesn't have to even think about it. Um, so... Uh, 
again, everything you have to work with a financial advisor. Inland doesn't sell these things directly. And you have to have a third party to evaluate your portfolio and make sure this is right for you. It's not right for everybody. But when you hit that sweet spot, it's it just it's like singing. It makes you feel so good because you're helping somebody. And I love the fact that uh, our founders, our four teachers, uh, you know, you had some people that uh, that created this who uh, have a history and a track record of helping the investor. And that's uh, that's kind of been uh, something that everybody who works at Inland is super proud of. And we're proud of the legacy. And we, you know, we have a very big company. We have um, Inland, uh, you know, different Inland uh, development company, um, other companies that uh, work with uh, mortgages, uh, providing uh, capital for people. So we're, we're proud of, uh, of what we do and, and how hard uh, everybody works for the investor. So um, it's interesting because these uh, four teachers came from nothing. Um, uh, Mr. Goodwin, I think he's, he drives around a, a car that's from, uh, I think it's 1993 Lexus. So he's, it's uh, nothing fancy. They like to make sure that we're providing the best um, ways of running a company at the uh, least least costly amount. And so we, uh, we we're in here in Oak Brook and some really good facilities, but you know, they're not class A buildings, but they're, they're good. And uh, it's all working out. Oh, that's great. It's a great story. And it sounds like a really great company to, to come to work to every day. Um, and I know you have to go, we have to go. We, you know, I want to be respectful of your time, but just, um, Tell us a little bit about, you are a board member of the Conservation Foundation. So just tell us a little bit about that organization, your, your good work there. Oh my gosh, Brooke McDonald, uh, the Conservation Foundation is run by him. He's a CEO. It was founded by Paul Butler, who helped found Oak Brook. It's also for Brooks McCormick, uh, who uh, was from uh, International Harvester. Um, we are uh, we're so happy about how leaders in the past, like a Bob Schillerstrom, uh, Bob Hutchison, now it's uh it's Chris Burke, our, our, the, the, our chair of the organization, do such a great job uh, with just a rock star staff. And they're able to identify land that could be open space. They work with parks and with forest preserves all around the different collar counties. And they're able to buy and hold for uh, for uh, a park district, for example. Um, right at 53 and Butterfield Road, there was a, a, a gas station that wanted, or there was a, actually it's a open old gas station that was going to be converted into a huge gas station. And the park district was able to, uh, were able to purchase that land from the owner uh, for the, we did that for the park district, the conservation did foundation did until the park district did a referendum and the referendum passed by like 90%. And so that land was, uh, was able to be made into a park and add on to parks, which is just phenomenal. Uh, but the amount of open space that the Conservation Foundation has helped preserve is like 33,000 acres through running referendums. They're very successful. They just had a successful referendum in Oak Brook where they uh, preserve 35 acres of open space. They also clean rivers and streams. They've, I think it's 25 25,000 tons or something. It's a huge amount of money over the last 20 years of getting garbage out of the DuPage River. They um, have also been involved with a thing called Conservation at Home, where you identify how your yard could be uh, turned more into pollinator gardens, rainwater gardens, and that helps to promote the pollinators, the bees who are having difficulty in our, with all the pesticides and everything else out there. The bees need to have these great little way stations, as we call them, as they go between forest preserves and people putting 
The milkweed, which helps monarch butterflies in their yards are important. And then conservation at work, you can uh, put uh, permeable paver parking lots in where the water can seep down into the ground, uh, which is filtered better. You can have uh, more native plants put in, especially around the, the uh, retention ponds where the geese come if there's no plants, because the geese, as you know, they, they have, they're really messy and you're able to have uh, the natural plantings provide stabilization of the, of the, um, of the pond, but then the geese, when they're in the water, they don't want to go in because there's not a line of sight if there's all the different vegetation. So lots of different areas to go into, but another important one, especially after we've gotten, we're, we're going through this pandemic, is for mental health. There's a thing called Nature RX, and that's where it's been proven that you need to go into the woods and be able to see you know, your, your mental health, to work after your mental health. I guess spiritually it's important as well. I know for me it is. And my grandpa had a great line. He said, I'd rather be at the river thinking about God than being at church thinking about the river. And so I think that's uh, important for people to recognize the fact that get out and experience nature. So um, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you guys. I really uh, love Ice Miller, uh, Dean Luffelman, Bob Schultz, Mike Roth. You guys are rock stars. Well, thanks so much, Dan. I think what, what jumps out to me when I talk to you is how much you like to help people. You like to help people. You like the company that helps people. You like to help the environment. You're a generous soul, and uh, we really appreciate you, you sharing all your knowledge with us today. Thank you so much, and uh, have a wonderful rest of, uh, of the week. Take care. Bye-bye. This publication is intended for general information purposes only and does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. The listener should consult with legal counsel to determine how laws or decisions discussed herein apply to the listener's specific circumstances. 